Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I'm thankful to open God's Word with you today uh, from our different locations, our living rooms, and uh, as we gather online this morning, uh, I'm just grateful for the, the chance that we have to be connected uh, during this season and to open God word, God's Word together. I'm wearing a tie today, um, and I, I trust that all of you, as you're tuned in this morning, you're watching from your living rooms, that you got up early and uh, that you put on your Sunday best as well. I'm just assuming that there's nobody out there wearing sweats or uh, their pajamas today. Uh, and so I'm just envisioning all of you in your living rooms uh, dressed to the nines this morning, just like I am uh, as we come together uh, today and, and open God's word together. So uh, let's pray as we begin our time together this morning. God, we are so thankful uh, for this chance that we have to connect, to remain connected, uh, even as we are so scattered during the season of our lives. We're thankful for your word and for the way that you continue to speak to us and remind us of your love, and remind us uh, that you came into the world to save the world, to save us. And God, we ask that as we read from this passage from John chapter 3 this morning, that you would remind us of exactly that, that you are the God who came to save, who came to rescue, who came to deliver us from danger. Let us praise you this morning, having remembered this, having had our eyes opened to your love for us, and having been brought near and into your kingdom. God, we are so thankful for you today, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, well, I have truly been thankful, as I said, for our digital gatherings over the last few weeks, and I'm thankful for the technology that enables us uh, to, to share in this virtual church experience that we are part of right now. But I am excited for the church to gather together again, to be able to shake hands and stand within like a city block radius of one another. Uh, but for this season, knowing that this is what we have, this is our way to connect, that our church family is doing what we can to protect our neighbors and our communities as we wait for this crisis to pass, I'm thankful to be here with you. And so this morning or this afternoon or whenever you are watching this service, turning to, as we are turning to, to a famous passage or more accurately, a famous verse that's part of a perhaps less well-known passage. Because even though many people know, or at least are familiar with John 3.16, a lot fewer people know John 3.17 through 21. And because of that, I want to approach this passage a little differently this morning. I'm sure that at some point you've read a book or seen a movie that begins with its own ending. It's a literary device that, if it's done well, can help give significance and meaning to the story itself, in addition to helping us as, it, as the audience members understand the characters in the story on a deeper level. From stories like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to the movie Saving Private Ryan, the opening scene is actually the end of the story that we are about to see unfold. So that by the time we get to the end of the book or the movie, we, we have come back to where we started. And arriving there, we have a greater appreciation, a deeper appreciation for the gravity of the situation and for the people that are involved. And that's exactly how we're going to approach this passage this morning. Beginning in John 3.16, we read about a promise of God's love that is definitely important. But after reading verses 17 through 21, we come back to this promise and we have a new and deeper understanding and appreciation for Jesus' words that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
We need to read what follows and come back to these words if we want to get a hold of what is really at stake, if we want to really appreciate and have a deeper grasp of Jesus' famous words here. I bet that many of you, without even needing to open your Bibles, were probably able to quote that verse along with me as I read it, because you have memorized it, perhaps memorized it from a young age. This is one of the most well-loved and memorized verses in the whole Bible. Martin Luther, the German theologian who lived about five centuries ago, said that this verse was the gospel in miniature. He saw that in these few words, there is something of the essence of or the epicenter of the entire Christian message in a single sentence. And so it makes sense that the church has loved John 3.16, memorizing it and teaching it to our families, writing it on signs to hold up at NFL games. But one of the unintended consequences of that popularity is that John 3.16 has become familiar. It's become common to us. And even if it is the gospel in miniature, as Luther puts it, it can lose some of its power if we are not careful with it. The same thing happens with lots of things in life. If you got a new car, one that you were really excited about, that you had saved for, and that you had meticulously researched in order to uh, buy exactly what you wanted and you brought it home, you would be excited to drive that car every chance that you got. Every morning that you got up to go to work, you would be excited to put the key in the ignition and go. But after you've been driving that car to work for months or years, after your dog has gotten hair all over the back seat, and you've dropped a few french fries into the crevice beside your driver's seat, that car will begin to become ordinary to you. At some point, it just becomes your way of getting around, not something that you're really excited by at all. And John 3.16 can become that way for us if we are not careful with it. This promise of rescue in these words can easily become unmoving to us if we don't take the time to think about the stakes that are involved. Here's what I mean. If you were sitting at home having dinner with your family on an average Tuesday night and a firefighter walked into your dining room and said, don't worry, I'm here to save you. You might think that the firefighter was lost or maybe even deranged. You certainly would not be relieved. But if, on the other hand, you were at home and discovered that a fire had broken out in another room, things would be pretty different. This time, when the firefighter walks in and says, nobody panic, I'm here to save you, your reaction would be a lot different. You'd be jumping for joy to see him arrive because you understood the danger that you were in. John 3.16 is a promise of rescue. And if we're going to rightly appreciate it, we need to keep reading to get a sense of the danger that we were in. This passage is actually the second half of a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Now, Bruce already walked us through the first half of that conversation in which Nicodemus, who is a scholar and a leader in the Jewish community, asks Jesus some questions about his teaching. Jesus is pointing Nicodemus and us toward the fact that he has come to address a far, far greater problem than what people had anticipated. Nicodemus approaches Jesus and he calls him rabbi because he understands something about Jesus, that he is a teacher. And that is exactly how many people look at Jesus even today as a teacher, someone who is wise and whose life is an example to be followed. But Jesus doesn't want Nicodemus or anyone else to walk away with the impression that all we need from him is a lesson 
or an example to follow. And so he tells Nicodemus that to be a part of God's kingdom, he must be born again. He must have a whole new life, something built from scratch, from the ground up. Nicodemus was among the religious elite, those who devoted their entire lives to memorizing and obeying God's law, who took their faith so seriously that it governed their entire lives. And as Bruce pointed out to us a couple weeks ago, if anyone was presumed to be in God's good graces, it would be someone just like Nicodemus. By our standard of measurement, he was near perfect. But Jesus makes it very clear that Nicodemus still is not safe. In fact, he's deeply flawed, like a house with a crumbling foundation that must be torn down and rebuilt. Nicodemus may have been expecting a pat on the back when he came to Jesus. Some praise from this man of God for being such a godly man himself. Yet, reading this, we might be a little uncomfortable, like Nicodemus probably was, with the blunt tone that Jesus takes as he talks with him. Imagine how any of us would feel to hear that the things we've spent our entire lifetimes working toward accomplishing had ultimately accomplished nothing. And that seems like a mean thing to do, a mean thing for anyone to say. But Jesus is not being careless with Nicodemus. Instead, Jesus is demonstrating his love for Nicodemus and for us in sweeping his legs out from underneath him in this scene. Because there is something broken, something deeply wrong that Nicodemus could not yet even see which Jesus has come to deal with. It's the issue that Jesus lays out in verses 17 and 18 of our passage. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The problem is far more serious than Nicodemus had understood. He thought that by being a good person in God's eyes, by following God's rules, and by behaving himself, he would be okay. But Jesus challenges that assumption by saying that the problem is more than skin deep. In fact, he says that all of the world stands condemned already. It stands before God in all of his holiness, in all of his glory, in all of his purity, and even at its best, in people like Nicodemus, it falls short. And the words of, that Jesus uses here in these verses are significant. In verse 17, he shifts into using legal language for a minute. Words like judge and condemned are words related to the trial and sentencing of lawbreakers. And according to Jesus, all of us, Nicodemus and everyone else has been judged already and already found guilty. So, Jesus says, he didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to investigate and determine the righteousness and character of people like Nicodemus or anyone else, because that determination has already been made. The whole world stands condemned, guilty before a holy God. Even the best of us isn't perfect. Even those who look perfect or who are assumed to be as close as possible, people like Nicodemus himself, stand guilty alongside those of us who are far from perfect. 
And hearing these words, we can practically hear the stone of fear drop into Nicodemus's stomach because everything that he's built his life on, everything that he's believed and sacrificed for has given him no advantage, no standing, not even an attaboy from this man he knows to be a teacher sent from God, as he said in verse 2. Instead, Jesus says that he stands before a holy God, a just God, And he stands there condemned and sentenced to die. The danger is far greater than Nicodemus knew. And it is his love for him, for this man, that compels Jesus to use this startling language. When I was in college, I got to go whitewater rafting with some friends. It was fun and it was completely chaotic. Periodically, as we bounced down the rapids, people would bounce out of the raft. Uh, And they would climb back in, and we would go a little further, and they would get bounced back out. None of us had any idea what we were doing, but we were having a good time doing it. And I think the reason is because we were never in any real danger. But if along the way someone had shouted to us from the bank that we were coming up to a huge waterfall, we would have started frantically paddling for the shore. Someone with knowledge of the river or perhaps a higher vantage point knew what lay ahead, and their warning would have caused us to change course. And Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus, is issuing a warning. He has knowledge of the river. He knows what lies ahead because his vantage point is higher than ours, and he is saying that we are drifting toward a waterfall. The peril is real, more real than Nicodemus or any of us knew before. And hearing that warning, we are driven to respond, to paddle toward the shore, And the way that Jesus makes that point is by saying, whoever believes in me is not condemned. The rescue that we need has already come. It is here. He is here, standing right in front of Nicodemus and each of us. His warning has gone out. That doing our best, being our best, is the course that we've been on. Trusting in our effort, our goodness, How we compare with others is ultimately a path that's causing us to drift closer and closer to danger, to the condemnation and the waterfall that lies just ahead. But, Jesus says, there is a path away from danger, one that Nicodemus must trust him to provide. It will not be found within Nicodemus. He must look to Christ for safety. He makes that point in the last part of this conversation, beginning by saying in verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now we know what Nicodemus may have not yet understood, that the light which has come into the world is Jesus himself. Back in chapter one, John describes Jesus by saying that everything that lives finds its life in him the light of mankind, the true light, which gives light to every, everyone and which came to dwell among us. It's a theme that is woven throughout the book of John as a whole. Jesus is the light that casts out the darkness. He is the rescuer, the one who comes to save us from what we could, ha- could not have defeated on our own. And he is the one who saves us from the waterfall, the, from, from our inching closer and closer as the river picks up speed. And he does this by giving his life for ours. In the heavenly courtroom, we stand before a holy and just God, and we are guilty. 
every single one of us, because none of us have lived well enough, been good enough, or kept God's instruction perfectly enough. All of us have failed already today, whether in big, catastrophic ways or in small, hidden ways, the result is the same, guilt and condemnation before a holy God. And the sentence that we face is death. But just before the gavel slams down and our sentence is carried out, Jesus steps forward, offering to serve our sentence for us. If he were anyone else, that wouldn't make sense. If he were a lawbreaker just like us, his offering to take our place would be dismissed because he too would be sentenced to death. But he is no lawbreaker. Instead, he is the only one who has ever lived perfectly. He offers his life, his perfect life, for our flawed ones and is able to exchange our death sentence for a pardon. Reflecting on this, the Apostle Paul would later write in his letter to the Romans that even though all of us have fallen short, sinned against a holy God, and failed miserably to uphold God's standard and statutes, he says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore in Christ now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. In Christ, our guilty verdict has been wiped clean, his innocence and righteousness exchanged for our guilt. The love of Christ for the world is a costly one. It is the love of redemption which demands a payment. And as the only law keeper, Jesus was the only one able to make such a payment on our behalf. It is the only way. This is a point that Jesus will make several times in the book of John, that this is the only way. This is the only rescue. In the darkness and brokenness of our chaotic world, a flicker of light has come. There is freedom. There is life and restoration won for us by Jesus Christ. Yet, Jesus says that this is the self-imposed judgment. The light has come and the people loved the darkness. In the middle of the river, rushing toward the deadly waterfall, a lifeline has been thrown to us. And all we need is to take hold of it to be saved. Yet, according to Jesus, many will refuse it. Many will love the darkness rather than the light that has come to save. Now, he's saying this straight to Nicodemus' face. He is a, a man who belongs to a group of religious leaders who will almost entirely reject him. They will be the ones pushing most loudly for Jesus' execution at the end of this story. Elsewhere, Jesus will make basically the same point when he says in Matthew 7, 14, that the path toward destruction is broad, but narrow is the path that leads to life, and few will find it. Most, according to Jesus, will reject him. Most will reject the light that has come to cast out darkness because, according to Jesus, they loved the darkness. I wonder, why? Why would anyone reject such a thing? If what Jesus says is true, if he is the rescuer who's come to bring uh, deliverance and to give life, why would anyone reject that? Someone might say to me, Travis, your illustration of being on a river that's drifting toward a waterfall and the death it represents is overly simplistic because, of course, anyone in that situation would be desperate to escape such peril. They would be thankful to receive an offer of rescue if they found themselves in that situation. None would reject it. So the illustration must not work because obviously no one would turn away from help if they were in such danger. But Jesus says that many will, most will, in fact. If we don't believe, if we refuse to believe that there is a waterfall ahead, 
or if we think that we are capable of handling it on our own, we will deny this rescue. We will paddle on ahead, more confident in ourselves, in what we know, and in our ability than in the warning we have received. We will build our lives on what seems best to us, what we judge to be most wise and good, on the truth that we define for ourselves. And so we will look to ourselves for the hope that we need, and in our pride, we will drift closer and closer to the perilous edge of the waterfall. Jesus explains, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Coming to Jesus, being rescued by him, requires us to admit our guilt. That even if we feel like good people, we are still sinners. And even if we are doing better than others in the world, we are all equally guilty before God. That means we have to accept our guilt and also that we must accept our weakness. It requires us to accept that there's something wrong and that there's nothing we can do to fix it. It demands our humility. It exposes us to the vulnerable position that Jesus describes as coming into the light and being exposed. For Nicodemus, it demanded that he accept that his lifetime of effort had not saved him or made him better off than anyone else. It required that he humble himself, declaring that he too needed a rescuer. This, according to Jesus, is what will determine the difference. Some will be humble and some will not. Some will cling to their strength or to their belief that they don't need rescue from anything in the first place. The path to rescue would demand Nicodemus's humility, just as it demands ours. He must admit that he needs it, and he must trust Jesus to provide it. And this passage confronts us with the same thing. Are we willing to admit that we need a rescuer? Jesus says that those who reject him, those who reject the light, do so because they don't want to be exposed by the light. They don't want to face the fact that in the light, some things might not look very good. We all understand that. But coming to Christ means laying all of our cards on the table, hiding nothing from him and saying that we need him to do and to fix what we cannot do for ourselves and we cannot fix on our own. It is the honest declaration that apart from him, we are slaves to sin, bound by it and condemned by it. Or we are more confident in our own way, in our own power, in our standard of righteousness and in our standing compared with other people. Are we certain that we are really good people who really don't need saving, who have never really done anything that bad? Or do we believe that Jesus is the rescuer that we need because we've taken an honest accounting of our lives? If we believe in ourselves rather than in Jesus Christ as the standard of truth and hope in our lives, then these words from Jesus are no comfort to us. They are a confrontation. If, however, we know our flaws and we know our weaknesses. If we know our guilt before a holy God, we will run toward the light. We will run toward our rescuer, the one who has come to save us. We will look to Jesus Christ in humility, asking him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so Jesus says, whoever does what is true or whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God's power. 
That is the difference. For the Christ follower, our lives are not shaped by our capacity for good, but by Jesus's capacity for good. The Christian does not put his or her trust in themselves, but in Christ to do what he alone is able to do. It's an important point for all of us to hear, but it would have rung in Nicodemus's ears because he had spent his life pursuing religious perfection. Years of study, a lifetime of careful observance of the law, and an impeccable reputation in the community of Jewish leadership had led him to believe that he was in good standing before God. Yet, all of that effort falls flat the very first time that he meets Jesus Christ. What he needs is not to try harder, but to be made entirely new from the ground up. To have his heart broken and replaced with one that desires God and rejoices in doing good. He needs that confrontation. He needs to be born again and to begin again. He needs a new, a new life in the spirit of God as part of God's kingdom. For a man who has proven himself capable of doing what many others could not, who had excelled in scholarship and in society as a distinguished and adept uh, follower of God, this was a frightening realization. To realize that something is beyond our control and beyond our means of success is an intimidating moment. And for Nicodemus, it was this moment when he asked in verse 9, how can these things be? He has been confronted with the realization that the problem is far more serious than he understood before and that the only way to safety will not come from within him, but from Jesus. And Jesus seems to have understood that Nicodemus was probably reeling from this news, and so he says famously in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The rescue has come. He is here, standing right in front of Nicodemus and each of us. There is a way out, a deliverer. And having read the verses that follow John 3.16, we circle back to it with a better, fuller, deeper understanding of its significance. Knowing that the whole world stands before a holy God, his love for the world suddenly seems brighter and more beautiful and more enduring. Hearing Jesus' words that apart from him, we will all love the darkness, we will love our sin and cling to our prideful belief that we don't need saving, that we will grasp and, and cling to our effort and our pride that we will make ourselves safe. Knowing that and understanding it, we grasp our need for him even more completely. John 3.16 is, is beautiful and full of hope for us, and even more so when we've taken the time to consider this passage as a whole. And knowing what we do, we come to him not simply as a teacher or as an example to follow, but as our great redeemer, the one whose life was given to give us life. It is a rescue that we receive by faith. It is the good news of Christianity that in looking to Christ, our condemnation has been replaced with love and mercy and forgiveness that was unearned and undeserved. There are, I think, a couple of significant observations we can make about John 3.16 that shape our lives in light of the, the verses that follow it. 
I've always thought that the words God so loved were a reference to the intensity of God's love, as if Jesus were saying God loves so much that he gave his only son, and that is certainly true. We should marvel at the sheer magnitude of God's love. It's something I think we understand naturally. We understand the, the, the premise naturally. The more that I care about something, the more I am willing to sacrifice and give up for it. And God has given something of infinite value because his love for you and me is beyond measure. But grammatically speaking, the phrase God so loved at the beginning of this famous verse is actually an explanation of the manner in which God loves, as if Jesus were saying, this is how God loved. He gave his son. It is the way of God's love. And God loves by giving himself. His love is sacrificial. It is redemptive, it is sufficient, and its end is eternal relationship with his people. Jesus came into the world he made in order to save it, to bring light into darkness and to do what only he could do. So rather than resting on our strength and our striving to do it on our own, we rest in Christ. And we are rescued when we trust him to save us. The path to life is not one that we make for ourselves, but one that we receive by believing in Jesus Christ and in his work. This is all we need to receive new life. It is all we need to have eternal life. It is all we need to begin again with hearts made alive in the spirit of God and rejoicing in his glory. It is the gospel in miniature and the answer to our worst fears. We have a rescuer. Nicodemus came face to face with the fact that he wasn't going to be able to rescue himself and neither would anyone else. On the river drifting toward the waterfall, the current has picked up so much that we cannot paddle against it anymore. If we try, no matter how hard we try, we will perish. We need someone to throw us a lifeline, something we can cling to in order to be brought to safety. And our lifeline is Jesus himself. All we need to do is cling to him, to believe in him, to trust in his saving work, and to grab a hold of the lifeline that he has thrown us. If you're watching this this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I hope that you'll consider these words. That the creator of the universe who made you and me has given his life to bring us to safety. If you want to investigate these things further, to think about them a little further, there are a few things I hope that you'll do. First, I hope that you'll explore what God has said in the Bible. Don't just take my word for it this morning because you don't have to. God has, himself has spoken to us through the Bible, and he is still speaking. You don't have to read the whole thing cover to cover to hear from God. Maybe just start with the book of John. Secondly, I hope that you'll reach out to someone who knows him, to ask them the questions that you have and honestly wrestle with these concepts. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He is not intimidated by our best arguments and criticisms. He wants us to love him not only with our hearts, but also with our minds. And that means thinking critically about these things. Feel free to send us an email. And maybe someday after all this is through, we can get coffee in person and talk about these things. And until then, we will correspond via email. I would love to find out what questions that you might have about these things. Regardless, I hope that you won't let this moment pass without considering that maybe the God of the universe is speaking directly to you, that he's calling to you calling you to safety and to life with him. Secondly, coming back to John 3.16 also drives home the urgency of our mission. 
by reminding us that God loves by sending the church into the world on mission to preach the gospel, save the lost, and to lead people to safety. God's love is for the world and everyone in it. It is a world that stands guilty and condemned already before our God, but it is not without hope. Every human being, every life, every person will eventually lead themselves toward one of only two outcomes, which we see in this verse. Jesus doesn't mince his words or soften the blow. In condemnation, as we stand guilty before a holy, a holy God, there is only one way to freedom and life. There is only one rescuer and only one deliverance, and it is Jesus Christ. Apart from him, everyone we know and everything we love, everyone in our workplaces, in our towns, our neighborhoods, is drifting closer and closer to a waterfall. We were once in that danger, and now we are the ones who know what lies ahead. And the person standing on the bank and shouting to the people in danger is you and me. We know this river. We know what's just around the next bend. And we are on a mission to tell people that there is a way out. We know that hell is a real place. And we know the rescuer who can deliver people from their peril. This year's Life on Mission conference has reminded us that God's love does not begin and end with us. His love for the world was not satisfied when you came to know him. It is a love for our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our families, and those we have yet to meet. And he is at work through us to save them and bring them to safety. Knowing all of that, we come back to where we started with a deeper appreciation for Jesus' famous words in John 3.16. And we understand that God so loves the world still, that he is still loving the world so much, and in this way that he is sending us to proclaim that the danger is real, and that he has made a way for us to be safe. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for this reminder this morning from John 3.16 that you have made, us, made a way for us to be safe and to be brought to safety. Uh, Lord, let us cling to that. Whenever we feel a tendency to trust in our effort and in our ability, let us, let us cling to you. Let us bind ourselves to you in the hope that only you can provide. God, we are thankful this morning for your word and for your son. We cling to it this morning in his name.